Welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I am Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Today, we are so pleased to have Stephen Bittinger, partner with K&L Gates in the firm's Charleston office and a member of the Healthcare FDA Practice Group. Mr. Bittinger focuses his practice on healthcare reimbursement compliance, defense, and litigation with a focus on government and private payer disputes on behalf of providers, vendors, and manufacturers involved in the United States healthcare system. He has extensive experience representing large provider groups, home health agencies, medical facilities, ancillary service providers, medical labs, revenue cycle management companies, and drug and device manufacturers in matters including Medicare and Medicaid audits, private payer audits, federal regulatory termination and exclusion proceedings, false claims act prosecutions, and healthcare revenue issues. In addition, he has experience advising clients on defending and appealing audits by recovery audit contractors, zone program integrity contractors, and unified program integrity contractors, and has worked collaboratively with government regulators and healthcare provider associations across the United States. Bittinger has represented many providers and vendors with federal agency matters in Washington, D.C., including CMS, the Center for Program Integrity, and HHS, the OIG, the um, Department of Veteran Affairs, and the Healthcare Fraud Division of the DOJ. Prior to joining the firm, Mr. Bittinger served at a regional commercial law firm where he focused his practice on healthcare reimbursement defense and litigation. Previously, Mr. Bittinger and team represented numerous types of physician practices, home health agencies, medical facilities, ancillary service providers, medical laboratories, revenue cycle management companies, and drug device manufacturers and Medicare audits RAC, ZPIC, UPIC, TPE, Medicaid audits, SIU, and private payer audits, federal regulatory termination and exclusion litigation re uh, related to healthcare revenue cycle. And then before we begin, I'd like to mention that at health, First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals. And every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our with uh, compliance super ninja recognition. So one super ninja our team is turning the spotlight on is Jean Fleischer, and she's a practice administrator for Scott A. Fleischer, MD and Associates. Jean's favorite part of working at Scott A. Fleischer MD and Associates is that she is very proud to be part of this busy adult and geriatric psychiatry practice. The practice has stayed open through the entire COVID-19 pandemic and has continued to take care of patients compassionately and with great skill. With the support of their dedicated office, office staff, their clinicians make a a real difference in the quality of life for many people. So congratulations, Jean, for being our super ninja. 
and our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you and your um, with your healthcare facility. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There's no need to request either one, it'll come automatically. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So without uh, further ado, Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for being here and speaking to us about this very important topic. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, so first off, I'm feeling really guilty. That, that was a terribly long introduction. So <laughs> I guess the short answer is I've done a whole lot of complicated uh, things involving healthcare regulations and disputes between payers and providers. Um, so yeah, I am a healthcare partner with KO Gates. Uh, we, we have a national and international healthcare team, and I focus my practice on reimbursement. Um, I, although I like to do reimbursement work on the proactive side, the majority of my work is in the defensive, um, defending audits or false claims cases or other investigations. And today, that's what I'm really going to turn to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to show my true colors and, and go deep into uh, some big data issues. And, and so I, I am a data geek. And, and even worse, I, I most of my work is in healthcare claims data. So I deal with coding and and all the different nuances of payer coverage positions and how those all result in a lot of the big scary actions that you see in the news or reported by the OIG. So today what I really wanna do is I wanna start very broad and then focus in quickly on what has happened uh, with big data in 2020. And like many other things in 2020, uh, an awful lot has changed. So uh, if you will uh, be patient and, and take in all the information that I'm gonna present, I, I look forward to answering questions at the end. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this presentation. All right, so here's an overview of where we're going. Uh, I'm going to start with an introduction that kind of gives the big broad picture for data and then we're going to focus in on how the data is used in False Claims Act litigation. And I'm going to divide that out into really four major portions of analysis and then we're going to finish out with how to use data as a, as a shield to defend against the significant risk of false claims cases. So we're going to talk about origins of using data to prove healthcare. How did this come to be? When did you know claims data become the basis of allegations of fraud? Uh, we're going to talk about how relators use data. And if you don't know, a relator is the whistleblower in a false claims case, uh, if there is one. Uh, we're also going to talk about how the government uses data 
uh, in false claims cases because a false claims case does not have to have a whistleblower. Many people don't realize that. The government can bring their own false claims case. And then we're going to talk about uh, using data to hunt fraud due to the COVID changes. So as most of you know, there has never been a time period in the history of healthcare in this country that there has been more change uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, the regulations have feels like they're overhauled just about every week. Uh, many services have changed, delivery methods have changed, and we're going to talk about how the audit process and collection of data and analysis of that data uh, due to those regulatory changes could be used for false claims litigation. And then we're gonna finish up again with recommendations on how to avoid that dramatic risk. So as a part of the big picture, um, I, I had to pause for just a minute because this is an article that came out recently and uh, and I wanted to share it, you know, so old school fraud, billing for dead people, right? Or, um, it still exists. So the DOJ put out a press release uh, in November that, that a woman in Vegas uh, had pled guilty to a $13.4 million healthcare fraud scheme where she had actually used information she collected from obituaries to back bill North Carolina Medicaid for home health care services that never occurred. Um, so, so just when you think old school fraud is gone, uh, there was a case that reminded me uh, that uh, unfortunately there's bad actors still doing the worst uh, type of action. And, and this type of case puts a lot of pressure and scrutiny on a lot of good providers out there. All right, so let's turn to the data world. Just to put things in perspective, um, so the OIG uh, releases their annual information. They have not released anything from fiscal year 2020, but that should be coming out in the near future. Um, but, but let's look at last year. Let's look at 2019. So just last year, Medicare and Medicaid accounted for 103.6 billion dollars. Yep, that's a B. Billion dollars in estimated improper payments. Fee for service, which had a 3.7.3% error rate, accounted for 28.9 billion. Medicare Advantage plans had a 7.9% error rate, which accounted for 16.7 billion. And Medicaid had a 14.9% error rate to come home as the winner of worst management of claims uh, for an error uh, value of $57.4 billion. Now, there's a whole backstory we could spend an hour on with Medicaid, um, but needless to say, the federal government doesn't take uh, Medicaid's struggles with proper adjudication of claims lightly, and they have instituted programs where federal review is now overseeing uh, Medicaid administration of claims. And we'll sink into that some as we move forward. Now, eat hot off the press. Uh, yesterday, uh, 
Just December 2nd, the OIG released their semi-annual report to Congress, and they had some really eye-opening uh, information to provide. Um, the OIG believed that, that just from their work, that they believe that they're gonna recover uh, approximately $4 billion from fiscal year 2020, uh, which closed two months ago. And, and that is you know, divided into 942 million from their audits, 3.14 billion based on investigations. Uh, they also reported just in fiscal year 2020 that they helped initiate or participate in 624 criminal actions, 791 civil actions based on false claims or unjust enrichment, and they excluded 2,148 individuals. So why do we include all that big, scary information? Well, because we, we need to understand the magnitude of what the government's trying to investigate. And, and when you're trying to investigate a sea of information, uh, you need a tool. And that tool is data, right? That tool is how do you take a sample of data and learn what it means across the universe? And so that leads me to extrapolation. So uh, sampling and statistical extrapolation, although it seems very commonplace today, has become uh, the primary weapon which auditors and FCA litigators, both privately and the Department of Justice, use to support their presumptions of fraud. So when did extrapolation really begin to be used? So I want to pause and step back in time here a little bit. Uh, most people don't realize that extrapolation didn't exist in healthcare fraud or audits uh, prior to 1986. In 1986, um, HICFA, who, who's the predecessor for CMS, uh, the, the acting administrator came out with a ruling that even though there was no express authorization, because there was no express prohibition from a contract auditor to use extrapolation, they could do it. So they didn't have to complete a full claim by claim review. Uh, the administrator believed that the providers had sufficient due process in the Medicare's appeal process. Now, we've had a whirlwind of growth and litigation and change regarding statistical extrapolation since then, but I wanted to touch on where we are now and some of the nuances. Now, let's talk about another major component of uh, data in proving healthcare fraud the brain, right? So uh, CMS has the Center for Program Integrity and they, they are literally the brain of healthcare fraud. Um, they are the largest uh, data processor of healthcare claims on the planet and they are the watchdog. So a couple things about CPI. CPI is the focal point for all national and statewide Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP integrity fraud and abuse is issues. Uh, they oversee all interaction and collaboration with the Department of Justice, uh, OIG, state law enforcement, and other federal agencies. 
Their primary purpose is to detect, deter, monitor, and combat fraud and abuse, uh, and they take action on that. They, they, are, they will pull together data analysis, make recommendations, make referrals. Um, CPI is the, right? Uh, they, they are the data center. Um, they, they have quite impressive capabilities, uh, which have accelerated a great deal in recent years. So how do they collaborate? Um, CMS put together the Fraud Prevention System, uh, which is a cutting edge software program um, that has been used to analyze all of the data and it identifies mistakes or intentional behavior that may lead to improper payments or indicate fraud. They also uh, began back in 2012, uh, a program called the Healthcare Fraud Prevention Partnership, all right, HFPP. And that now includes 181 public and private partners. So FYI, even though CPI is, is by law governing the uh, integrity of Medicare and Medicaid information, the partnership includes many, many commercial payers, right? And, and so there are a lot of the commercial payers that are involved in this partnership and they share data and collaborate and they work together to hunt fraud or what they believe is fraud. Also, um, in 2008, uh, CPA, CPI started the Major Case Coordination Initiative. And basically, again, they're using their skill set as the main data miner uh, to collaborate with OIG and the DOJ. That resulted in some very significant takedowns. One example, Operation Brace Yourself in 2018, their first big hit. Uh, was a $2 billion fraud takedown. All right, um, now moving on, that's the government's big analysis, right? How do they collect all that data, collaborate and analyze? What about relators, the whistleblowers, right? Uh, there's been some really interesting cases recently on relators use of data. Um, the first case I want to talk about is Integra Med Medical Analytics. Uh, they are basically a professional relator. Um, they are an analytics company, and they use data mining from public claims. In other words, you know that all of the uh, claims submitted to Medicare are uh, public record because they're part of a public agency and they can be requested after certain PHIs removed and you can get copies of that that data at the after each year and analyze it. So Integra is a company that was analyzing CMS claims data, came up with a pattern from a certain provider that they thought was fraudulent and they filed a false claims act case. So in 2017, uh, Central Di District of California ruled that they were barred by what's called the public disclosure doctrine because they had no insider knowledge. And the public disclosure doctrine means that um, if the information that the claims are based on is publicly available, then you can't, you can't qualify as a relator. 
So the end result in this case is that Integra was disqualified as a relator. Now the government certainly could have pursued that claim on their own because the government can always use their own information to pursue a claim. The other case I wanna talk about, uh, much more recent in the Northern District of California uh, is uh, Jones versus Sutter Health. And it was recently dismissed and it's a slight twist on the public doctrine issue. Um, the relator had used FOIA requests to gather public claims data. And, and so the FOIA process is a little different than just a, requ a request um, from to CMS, like if you're a provider and gather that information. But Jones, the relator, she was also a patient. Uh, she was a patient who had one of the procedures which she believed were, were improperly billed. And she gathered a whole bunch of information regarding similar procedures performed by Sutter Health. And despite the fact that she was a patient who had, you know, purportedly been part of uh, or a victim of this alleged fraud, um, it was ruled that she had no insider knowledge and she also was disqualified as a relator. All right, so let's talk about the government's use of extrapolation. Right, we, we talked about CPI and how they gather all that information, how they collaborate. Now, what about the, the weapon of extrapolation, taking a sample set with findings on a sample set and then statistically trying to assert that the results of that sample set apply to this large universe of claims? So I wanna step back a little bit um, for in 2000, 20 years ago, in the Cabrera-Diaz case, uh, extrapolation was permitted to use uh, or to establish False Claims Act liability uh, for Medicare claims. And, and the interesting part about this case is that the defendant failed to appear and because the defendant failed to appear that the government won by default. So there was no evidence to dispute that the government's large extrapolated figure was wrong, all right? The defendant didn't present any conflicting evidence or testimony. So extrapolation won by default in that case. And it was an interesting case because it was a part of the solidification of using extrapolation for these types of cases. A little more recently, uh, 2009, in the Lauren case, uh, extrapolation was permitted to establish the total number of claims, but only after a bellwether jury trial to determine sufficient evidence defendants submitted false claims. Now, a bellwether jury trial, meaning uh, it is basically a process where uh, legally through the, instead of having a trial that includes all of the evidence of the whole universe of claims, the trial process is focused on a sample set. And so there was a full jury trial and the jury had to decide if that sample set was proven to be fraudulent. And, and so basically if the sample set, the jury says was fraudulent, then the government could use the extrapolation process across the universe of claims. A couple of more recent cases uh, that have 
changed kind of the landscape for extrapolation. There's the Martin B. Life Care Centers of America from 2014 in Tennessee. Uh, extrapolation was used to prove uh, FCA liability with claim by claim review because was permitted to because it was quote unquote impracticable. Now that is a very broad, very broad foundation. So it's, it's pretty much always impracticable uh, for the government to review you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of claims individually. And, and so the, the Tennessee court basically gave the government a tremendous amount of deference to try and use extrapolation anytime it suited their, their need. Now, the next year, 2015, the opposite. Uh, in Michaels versus Agape Senior, um, the extrapolation was not permitted because they had to have a bellwether trial. Now that bellwether trial never took place in that case, um, but if you sink into the details, it was basically a battle over medical necessity. And the court ruled that uh, you had to prove that there was a lack of medical necessity and, and that the claims, the services were performed for a fraudulent purposes, purpose um, in a bellwether before you could extrapolate a failure of medical necessity across the universe versus a technical error or coding error. All right, so let's move forward. Let's let's get a let, let's get a little better handle from the large uh, error-based payment numbers. Let's talk about false claims act numbers, right? What, how much of those really large error payments is related to false claims litigation? So here's some interesting figures. Uh, the Department of Justice puts out and they update every year um, using fiscal year 2019 because that's the most recent released. Um, but from 1987 to 2019, since the DOJ has been putting these records out, uh, the government has initiated 5,309 of the total 18,590 cases, or 29%. So that means 29% the government brings the case off of a complaint, off a report, or off their own data. And on those cases, that those 5,309, they've recovered 17 billion. In 2019, um, 146 of the 782 or 19% of the false claims cases did not involve a relator. They were government initiated. And 844 million was recovered out of the 3 billion uh, that was recovered in 2019 on government initiated cases. So that's 28%. In 2019, uh, it's you add this together with where's what's the source of the false claims case? Uh, 2.6 billion of the 3 billion collected was from healthcare. All right. So yes, there's other types of false claims outside of healthcare, but healthcare is the vast majority of this type of litigation. So that means uh, that, that 734 million approximately came from government-initiated false claims cases within healthcare. Now, that's a big, still a very big number. 734 million is a lot of money. 
So let's turn to where do government initiated false claims cases originate? You know, I mentioned earlier, they can come from a complaint, not a whistleblower, but a complaint or somewhere else. Uh, let's sink in there. So the, the Department of Justice, which is the government's attorney, the prosecutor, right? Um, they can initiate cases, but where's the primary source? And the primary source is, is from their auditors, their audit team, right? It comes from CPI. CPI is the brain that processes all the claims and oversees it. But CPI hires Unified Program Integrity Contractors, or UPICs. And UPICs are private companies. They, they, are, they are not government agencies. They're private companies that contract with CMS to perform fraud, waste, and abuse auditing. Uh, UPICs cover Medicare Parts A, B, DME, home health and hospice, Medicaid and Medicaid and Medicare da data matching, or MediMedi. UPICs are specifically created to consolidate all the prior types of integrity work. So it's really important to understand that the UPICs have been out for a couple of years, but they are a federally contracted auditor who's reviewing Medicaid and Medicare. And, and so they are the the federal government's watchdog who's overseeing the Medicaid's administration and Medicaid integrity work of the states. So Medicaid collaborates with the FBI, DOJ, and OIG. Um, important to note that UPIC uh, rules, basically the Medicare Program Integrity Manual or the MPIM, uh, which was just recently updated, uh, put certain mandates on UPICs, and they are now mandated or required to refer cases of suspected fraud to law enforcement or the DOJ. Um, they perform all of their work and report all of their work in something called the Unified Case Management System. And the Unified Case Management System is basically the software system that now controls all of providers' history and is accessible by all of the main federal agencies. And it is the single record for the history of providers on any, any type of review, analysis, or issues that you've ever had with a payer. So what are some of the big recent results? All right, at, at all this collaboration, data analysis, uh, two big cases recently. Operation Brace Yourself was a $1.2 billion fraud scheme. This was a joint task force action between the FBI, OIG, CPI, the IRS got involved, um, and they suspended 130 DME suppliers in a single day based on data collection and participation. So there were a number of people charged criminally, but that same day CPI suspended 130 providers who had somehow been a part of processing those claims, uh, even if they weren't criminally liable, uh, due to the risk to the Medicare funds, C CPI felt they had grounds to suspend uh, payments to all of these suppliers. Operation Double Helix, 
Uh, very similar, just later in the year, in 2019, $2.1 billion fraud scheme. Again, joint task force. Um, they took down 35 defendants in numerous laboratories, uh, part of billing for genetic testing. And so it's really to understand now, there was a much larger joint task force uh, released in September of 2020 that is alleged to have about $6 billion in loss. And, but it was a combination of a number of other uh, types of investigations, not so much a single uh, data set analysis, but a multiple series of investigations that were all executed on the same day. So let's turn um, to what they're hunting and where we think we're going, right? So using data to hunt fraud, and, and let's now we've got to apply it to all of the COVID changes, right? And now obviously we can't go through the hundreds and thousands of regulatory changes that have been implemented uh, due to COVID, but let's work through a few examples. So since the inception of the public health emergency, the number of CMS waivers, policy updates, and billing changes have just been extraordinary. But let's focus on, on just telehealth, right? Telehealth has had substantial changes, and some of them were just, uh, just finalized permanently in the uh, CMS position fee schedule final rule, uh, which was released yesterday. But during the PHE, uh, telehealth had 11 formal guidance papers uh, and it, they, CMS developed its own website and portal for telehealth implementation and coverage. Uh, the FAQ for Medicare fee-for-service was updated dozens of times. Um, the most recent one was just uh, on Monday or Tuesday this week, uh, December 1st. And so this single type of delivery of services across all the different types of services created by the time number of complexities, thousands of changes to how these services should be built, right? If you're going to gather all that information, put it into a CMS 1500, and you're going to, you know, hit that electronic screen in the software system and try to get paid for that claim. The elements of the codes and the location and the type of service has changed many, many times in just the nine months that we've been under a public health emergency. All right, so um, same thing. Uh, we, we've had lots of changes, 11, well, I guess I just didn't change it. There we go, next slide, sorry about that. <laughs> All right, um, so let's, if we're looking at like the evolution of all the regulatory changes that's going on with the, with, with the claims and how they are processed and how they are determined to be compliant, the government at the same time is, is developing a plan for this, right? How are they going to investigate? So CPI and UPICS are currently tracking providers' implementation 
of all those changes to the policies and billing requirements. Um, I, everybody knows, or hopefully should know, that Medicare suspended all payments or all audits uh, during, from the end of March until the end of August of this year that were just error-based, RAC-type audits, but not integrity audits. Integrity audits kept going. So basically, during this public health emergency, the error-based evaluation of claims was put on hold, but the integrity evaluation of claims continued. So uh, CPI and UPICS have still been collaborating and gathering all this data and start doing their outliers analysis and then continually putting that analysis up against the changing grid of the regulatory requirements that were shifting during this period. And so the UPICs are invest investigating aberrant or unusual billing patterns of providers uh, that have not followed the new requirements and they're reporting them to the UCM, all right? They're plugging all that information into that central database that the rest of the federal agencies have access to. And we have seen this year a number of uh, UPIC referrals directly to the Department of Justice, right? Hey, this data doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We don't see any logical explanation for these, this claims pattern except for potentially fraud. So they hand that information over to the Department of Justice. They analyze it. Um, they use their experts and resources. And we have seen the Department of Justice already taking action uh, for fraud committed by improper billing of claims uh, that has really accelerated during the public health emergency. So how many government-initiated FCAs, False Claims Act? Again, it can be civil or criminal. Will the DOJ file from these data referrals? We don't know. We'll have to see. Um, now, let's turn to how do you defend yourself, all right? A lot of scary information, a lot of big numbers, uh, a lot of fear based off of you know, what the government is tracking and who's investigating. But let's take a deep breath and let's talk about a plan, right? Most of the people participating in this call, they are either are a provider or they're a compliance professional or administrator that is trying to keep their doctors out of trouble, right? So let's slow down and talk about a few recommendations. First of all, drill down on your policy changes. I know this is painful, right? Um, for billing professionals or compliance professionals, we have never had more change more frequently in, the, in our careers or in our lifetime. And it is difficult to keep up with all of the changes that are occurring on a daily, weekly basis, but you've got to do it you've got to make sure you're current and really sink into your policy changes. All right, basically a lot of people I've heard have asked this question, uh, well, isn't the government just gonna have grace? Uh, you know, aren't they just gonna have forgiveness for providers during this public health emergency because of all the strain the pandemic has put on the health system and on doctors? And unfortunately, the answer is no, 
Um, interesting side piece of information that I did not include here is that the GAO, the Government Accounting Office, uh, released a report yesterday that it is anticipated that due to accelerated payments and shifting in costs, that Medicare uh, could have insolvency struggles as early as 2022. So the bottom line is CPI and auditors are trying to hunt wasted dollars for a system that has very serious financial struggles. So they're not going to have, just have grace for errors, right? They're hunting the bad actors and they are trying to recover payments that were not proper and compliant. So what do you do? You self-audit, right? I, I understand that there is more to keep up with right now than ever before in a practice or, or in a facility, um, but you've got to make time to self-audit. You've got to audit your charts, right? You need to do a clinical peer-to-peer. You need to hire a third-party company from the outside to come in and evaluate your charting, but then you also need to evaluate your coding, right? Was your coding compliant, right, for what you were billing during that time period for the set of rules as they existed on the data service? You've got to make time for it. My recommendation is to always self-audit at least once a quarter. All right. That way, if there was an error and, and somebody didn't catch a policy change, you at least limit your risk to three months. All right. So it's important that this is a regular practice and a regular habit. Now, if you find that you have, you know, you failed to meet requirements and you got paid when you didn't meet the compliance requirements, you must, must, must self-disclose overpayments. Don't hold on to them. Uh, we could spend another hour on what's called reverse false claims liability, but basically that means all of the teeth that apply to false claims liability, including uh, civil monetary penalties, treble damages, attorney's fees, also applies for the improper retention of overpayments. So if a practice discovers they have an overpayment and they decide just to hold on to it, if later the government finds that out, you could owe not only the overpayment, but three times the amount of the overpayment, plus a civil monetary penalty of up to $23,000 per claim. So pretty stiff penalties out there for holding on to something you know you shouldn't. So if you find an overpayment, do your analysis, figure out the magnitude of it, and make sure you self-disclose that. Now, it could just be an overpayment refund. It does not, I mean, depending on what the issue is, it does not always have to be the self-disclosure protocol to the OIG. It can just be an overpayment refund back to your administrative contractor. So couple more steps, right? Be beyond the disclosure, take corrective action, right? Put together a plan, a written plan that is well-documented on how it was executed so that if this issue is ever reviewed by an outside agency or auditor, they have a full history in writing of 
when you identified the problem, how you quantified the problem, how you paid it back, and then the steps you took to ensure that the problem would not happen again. Now, from the basics, let's talk about data, right? How do we use data as a defensive shield, right? So if we are trying to fight fire with fire, uh, I always encourage providers to get their comparative billable reports or their program evaluation payment patterns and air electronic reports or PEPR reports from CMS. If you uh, have not received these or don't know what these are, it's really important that you do know what they are and that if you don't have them, you can request them, all right? You can get these from your Mac and take the time. What, what are they, um, first of all, if you don't know, um, and then take the time to understand them. So a comparative billable report is basically uh, a analysis of your services, right? They've, they've reviewed, they've taken all of your claims and they've put it up against your peers. And you're, they've asked the question, how do you, how does your claim data look versus your peers' claim data? And you can learn a lot from examining these reports. Now, that doesn't always mean that you, uh, just because you are an outlier, basically your, your numbers stick out from your peers, that you're always wrong. I mean, I have clients who are consistently outliers because they are super high performers, um, that they're still doing everything right. Now, CMS may still take a look under the hood every year. I, I've got a number of clients that are super high performers, and they get a audit-like clockwork once a year just to check on how things are going. But we normally defend them and, and don't have to pay anything or much back. So just because you have a different billing pattern than all your peers doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something fraudulent or doing something wrong, but you have to understand it. Now, sometimes it does mean that you have a variance that would lead to an overpayment or even potentially put you at risk for suspicion of fraud. So, so if you are a provider on this call, you must understand what these are. All right, if you're a compliance professional, you need to make sure that you understand these and that your providers understand these. What else can you do? So uh, Medicare has a provider utilization or other supplier uh, public use file, all right? A PUF, a PUF. Uh, a public use file basically is um, accessible information all right, this is the, the public can get to the provider's utilization information from the CMS database. This is for Part B. Um, now, this is a couple years old, right? Uh, be, because it takes a little time to scrub this data and make it all clean for public availability. Uh, but currently, all right, there is 2012 through 2017 available for Part B services. And if you're a Part B provider, this is extremely useful. Um, and, and you know, I'm a bit of a geek, but you know, if you want to dive into this data stream, you can learn an awful lot about your peers or about other types of providers uh, by understanding their data. 
Now, a couple final recommendations here. Um, if you're a positive outlier, meaning you're just a super performer, track your supporting data, right? Do you have a unique diagnosis? Are, are you such a special practice that you know patients come to you from all around the state or all around the country? Um, do you have a unique patient population? Are you demographically different than a lot of your peers? If you track some of those data, and that may explain some of the variances from your peers. And, and a lot of my clients, long-term clients, this is their situation, right? They, they are a super niche practice um, or they're in a really unique location, right? Um, and, and that location has created patient demographics um, that make them unusual from their peers. So uh, I hope that you have gained some understanding of how the government uses data, how it's particularly uh, used by the government and relators in False Claims Act litigation. But more importantly, I hope you've gained some working tools to how to reduce your risk of these severe consequences and that you've enjoyed this presentation. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, with that, I will turn it back over to Catherine. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Very, very much appreciate that. Um, very uh, nice presentation. Um, we do have a few questions. So the first one is, what are some of the highest targets for investigation due to COVID cha changes? Um, yeah, well, th there are a number of them, but I will tell you, um, let's do one on the hospital side and, and, and one on the outpatient side. So. Uh, for hospitals, uh, and most of you probably complete aware um, and have been keeping track of the elevated reimbursement being paid to hospitals um, for treating COVID patients. Now, that is not a that 20% that you hear in the news is not a direct additional 20%. That is put on the, the weighting factor that goes into the formula for the MSDRG. Um, but we have received guidance now kind of after the fact on uh, the requirements that it will take to establish that that patient was properly diagnosed with COVID. Uh, predominantly, that is going to be an audit focused on laboratory tests and the timing of the labor laboratory tests. Uh, did the hospital have a confirmatory test within 14 days of admission? Was it the right type of test? Did the hospital perform any confirmatory tests um, at the time of admission or during the care? And so that is a really big one for hospitals. In the outpatient side, um, I have to say that the telehealth theme is continuing. Um, you know, the largest uh, telehealth-based fraud takedown was announced in September, and that was $4.5 billion. But telehealth, as we know, uh, is, is really the wave of where care is going. Um, CMS is promoting it for the many positive reasons that it keeps uh, the most vulnerable safe during the pandemic, but it is also probably one of the most abused 
means of delivery of care. So that, that those are probably your two main targets as, as we head into 2021. Okay. Um, very good. And then how is the government able to challenge medical necessity with data? Well, that's a really good question, right? Um, so there, there's a couple of different types of data cases, right? I mean, the, the simple one is, hey, you build the wrong cl claim number or the wrong service, so you got paid too much. That's a hard data case, right? You just pull the data. Um, but then on medical necessity, medical necessity requires a presumption, right? You have a, a dispute, you have the doctor who believed it was medically appropriate and they build the claim. And then you have the government's doctor who reviews the same records for the patient and says, no, this wasn't medically necessary. And so you have to have a battle of the experts on a sample set first, you know, the bellwether trials that we talked about. Um, and basically, in, in the litigation context, if a fact finder, a jury or a judge determines, nope, the government's doctor's right, then they can extrapolate it and they can use the data to push that out to a larger universe. Um, and unfortunately, as many providers know, uh, in the Medicare appeals process, it takes a long time and a lot of steps to get clear to an administrative law judge before you get to bring in your own expert to support medical necessity. Um, and so it's a, it's not quite a fair a, as burden uh, within the appeals process, but basically the government either in the appeals or the civil court can assert a lack of medical necessity on a sample set. And depending on the burden, if that is held up, they can then extrapolate that across a large amount of data. Okay, uh, I have a question again about the the telehealth telemedicine uh, one again. Um, you were saying that's um, responsible for quite a bit of the uh, fraud, correct? Um, or yes. um, some of the issues. Um, and I know that uh, you know obviously it's it's exploded and. Um, it's it's come about a lot faster or come into practice quite a bit faster than it had been previously, obviously. Um, uh, so so my question was, uh, is some of it, now some of it, um, it seems like is due to outright intentional um, fraud um, and, um, you know, misuse of perhaps what um, people are putting in um, patients that perhaps were not seen, um, but then is perhaps some of it maybe, um, and I think I've asked you this in, in previous webinars through, um, not, and I, I use the word accidental, I think you use a different word, but perhaps through not um, documenting it correctly um, or not, um, you know, perhaps uh, coding it correctly or some, something along those lines, is that happening as well? What's your, um, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, actually. So th th that's the vast majority of it. To to take all those big numbers and boil it down, um, the error-based payments, which are the the astronomical numbers um, that I shared at the beginning, mm -hmm. that is about ninety-five percent just 
negligence or error-based mispayments. That's what I was roughly, wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly 5% is really intentional. However, what happens is when you have significant disruption to the system, the disruption being all the regulatory change during the pandemic, it is harder for the government to regulate that and sort out what is fraud-based versus what is error-based. Um, so that will raise that 5% a good amount. And the bad actors can actually take advantage of the disruption uh, mm -hmm. through the misuse of all the new delivery systems, right? Right, right. Um, so the OIG has already put out that their, their anticipated uh, you know, recoveries are going to be dramatic uh, from 2020. So it, it's most likely that when we are uh, in 2022 and, and looking back at a year of review and results from 2021 and 2020, that we're going to see a significant uh, error-based increase, but also significant fraud-based increase. And so that creates a lot of risk for providers that they need to be very careful and proactive about. Okay, which is why you were saying if, if a person said, well, isn't the government going to be a little bit more lenient? And you would say no, because, because, of, because of this reason, right? Correct. So the, the bottom line is the auditors get paid more based off of the more they recover. So no, they don't care. And, and Medicare um, just wants to really make sure that they are preserving the funds, which are quickly depleting. So it right. is hard, but it's the reality. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks. Um, okay. Uh, we, do, we have another question here. Is extrapolation abused by the auditors? Fervently, yes. Um, so... You know, as I just stated, auditors, um, they get paid more based off the more they recover. So auditors frequently um, use a lot of boilerplate or stock denial reasons or technical denial reasons to increase an error rate. And then they extrapolate that across a large universe of claims to what they believe, and they believe they have some evidence for a large amount of overpayment, um, but it's very interesting. The OIG actually came out with a report in the middle of this year, uh, really throwing mud on a lot of the government auditors for misuse of extrapolation. In other words, their, their error percentage was not strong enough. Their uh, process for doing the math didn't have what's called a high enough confidence interval. Um, so it, it wasn't accurate enough to support uh, under statistical standards the extrapolated amount. And, and the other thing to understand is that, you know, as uh, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals st statistics still reveal, a very large amount, somewhere around 40% of extrapolated figures are overturned by the time they go through the administrative appeal process and get before an ALJ. So 
as of statistics today, roughly 40% of the time, those extrapolated overpayments end up being wrong. And that's really hard on providers. Right, right. Okay, well, uh, I think that's all the time we have for questions right now. I think we'll have to take uh, any others offline uh, through email. So I wanted to thank you so much. Did you have any other words of advice or anything else that you wanted to leave with us um, today? Well, you know, I know I'm the bearer of a lot of scary news, but uh, if you're listening to this today, uh, I think the greatest thing we can all do in the middle of this pandemic and all these different changes is find reasons to be thankful. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity to share today and, and, and I know a lot of people are going through very difficult times, um, but if we can find ways to be grateful and to help support each other, it'll help all of us move through this together. Really, really great words. Thank you so much. That's very true. I wanted to thank you again for being with us today. So, so thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yes, and uh, thank you so much, attendees, for being here as well. And please use the contact information on your screen for any questions. And if you send us any questions that you think of later, we can forward them on. And please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.